Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering six conversations from Season 3, Episode 27, our wrap-up of the Fifth Global Nash Congress that took place in London on May 27th and 28th. This conversation includes two brief interviews. The first is Louise and Rachel's interview with Ultimate Chief Medical Officer Scott Harris. And the second is Rachel's interview with Antaros Medical Vice President of Global Business Development, Caleb Roberts. Scott Harris discusses the value of dual receptor agonists in weight loss. He focuses on existing published studies for GLP-1 agonist semaglutide and the dual GLP-1 GIP agonist terzepatide, and shares some data on pemvidatide, Altimune's dual receptor GLP-1 glucagon agonist. This branches into other issues, including impact of rapid weight loss on micronutrients and the concept of sarcopenic obesity. Caleb Roberts discusses the relevance of imaging for researchers assessing the metabolic effects of NASH medications on the patient's overall metabolic profile and perhaps other organ systems, notably including the kidneys. He also discusses briefly some of the concepts that Antares is developing, including PET tracers. The Fifth Global NASH Congress brought together industry, academic, and patient advocates in a forum that covered an array of issues and perspectives. We've tried to bring you an assortment of these in the episode 27 conversations. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Louise Campbell. So Scott, just go ahead and introduce yourself and just briefly summarize your slide presentation from earlier. Altimune Chief Medical Officer Scott Harris. Oh, thank you, Louise. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm Scott Harris. I'm a gastroenterologist, hepatologist, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Altimune. And we're developing a drug called pemvidutide for the treatment of obesity and NASH. And the essence of the presentation today was that the combination of GLP-1 and glucagon was synergistic. We've combined it in the same model. It's a dual receptor agonist, very similar in principle to terzepatide, which within the same molecule combines GLP-1 and GIP. We think the advantages of glucagon is that it drives a different mechanism of weight loss. GLP-1 and GIP reduce appetite, whereas GLP-1 and glucagon reduce appetite but also stimulate resting energy expenditure. We use the paradigm of diet and exercise, and we have the potential for a greater weight loss better with that combination. We saw very promising results with semaglutide, which is now approved and marketed as Wegovi with a 15% weight loss in one year. But there are counter-regulatory mechanisms that keep the weight loss from being any greater than about 15%. Even if you continue the drug for two years, and that was looked at in the step five trials, there isn't any further weight loss. And it shows that the counter-regulatory mechanisms, what it is is a decrease in resting energy expenditure works against the decrease in calories and the patient receives achieves a steady state that's uh, somewhat below the desired level. And the desired level is bariatric surgery weight loss, which is 25 to 30%. We know that achieving 10% is very important. It's very important for NASH, but it's also important for the other complications of obesity. And it's a continuum, and the more weight loss you have, the better the impact. So we're trying to achieve with medications weight loss of 25 to 30%. With terzepatide, extremely promising results of 20%. And that will be presented in upcoming meetings very shortly. We were able with our drug in a first in human study to achieve greater than 10% weight loss in just 12 weeks. That compares to Desepatide achieving 20% at 72 weeks, so 
one half the way, amount of weight loss, but in one sixth the time. And we're fairly confident that we can achieve the 20% weight loss or beat it within the one year time frame. The data was ex- extremely impressive. And I think you showed some data up there when the defatting of the liver, it was below the level of detection, I think right. around about 1.5%. Is there any negative consequences to the liver or implications of getting rid of all liver fat? No. Many patients, even people who are overweight or obese, do not have detectable levels of liver fat. Many subjects who came into this phase one study who were obese did not have detectable liver fat. They were not obviously included in the analysis. But the bottom line is that one does not have to have detectable liver fat by MRI to live a healthy lifestyle. Do you have any data yet to suggest that when the drug is withdrawn in follow-up, do they regain the weight? Do they do it at a different rate? Are they able to maintain an altered lifestyle that's been induced by the medication at all? Are there any? We don't have that data from our study. We did not have a follow-up phase. This would have been ambitious for a phase one study. The data from the STEP program suggests that if you withdraw the drug, in this case, it would be semaglutide. The placebo patients who are on the withdrawal regain their weight, whereas those who are maintained on semaglutide continue to lose weight or at least maintain it. So these look to be chronic drugs. Uh, they have to be maintained to maintain the appetite suppression and the resting energy expenditure. Now, we don't have that data. Possibly there'll be an upside, but based on the semaglutide data, one would anticipate that dosing would be chronic. When we, um, you and I could probably discuss um, nutritional support and lifestyle management of Nathalie and Nash for weeks, let alone um, a few minutes. But are there any micronutrient deficiencies or macronutrient deficiencies in losing weight that quickly? Louise, it's an excellent question. As you know, micronutrients are tough to follow. You know, you really can't assay them in blood levels, and sometimes you just have to see what a urinary excretion is in order to assess them. The general paradigm in weight loss is no more than 1% a week, and that's known from the bariatric surgery literature. So although the mechanism of weight loss with pembenutide is a bit different because bariatric surgery is really restriction of intake, although it does stimulate the secretion of uh, incretins because of the exclusion of the duodenal and the rush of food down to the ileum to stimulate GLP-1 secretion, there has been no micronutrient deficiency reported. Now, there have been a variety of things that have been reported with excessive weight loss, such as gallstones. And usually, as that's as you get to about uh, greater than 1% per week. So I believe the answer to that question is no, but I think it should be examined more fully. Obviously, some of the essential micronutrients are fat-soluble. And if we remove the fat, whether or not exactly. it's um, adipose or internal liver fat, that may interest need to see the consequences of that. Yeah, you know, we agree entirely, and I think it's uh, food for thought, so to speak, <laughs> like, a pun on words, but I think it's an excellent question. I know you asked me that before, and I don't have an immediate answer, but I'm looking into it. <laughs> Good. Rachel, did you have any questions? What would be the way to quantify micronutrients in this patient population? So I believe typically serum levels of micronutrients are unreliable. They don't reflect the body store of the micronutrients, so a typical uh, way of assessing a micronutrient is a 20 for our urinary collection now. I don't know if that applies to all of the micronutrients and whether a serum level would suffice. So my answer for you is incomplete at this time. I think it's an important question. But if one looks at the bariatric surgery literature, where they're exceeding 1% per week weight loss, and we achieved 10% over 12 weeks, so we were about, what, 0.83% per week. They haven't seen that kind of problem. But sometimes you see what you know, and if you know there's no deficiency because you're set on there not being it, you don't see it. So I think we should look at it. I suppose the 
counter argument would be people who tend to live with obesity have micronutrient deficiencies anyway because they're not consuming the right diet. Right. So it's probably more of the opposite rather than, but it'd be interesting data. Well, these people certainly have differences in body composition. During the conference, the concept of sarcopenic obesity was brought up. And what that means is that obese people actually have a deficiency of lean body mass, not just relative to their total weight, but just a deficiency in general for their ideal body weight. And what happens is because of the insulin resistance that they develop because of obesity, they don't have sufficient responsiveness of insulin in their muscle groups to maintain body mass. In other words, insulin is atrophic and it uh, drives glucose into the uh, muscle cell and that maintains the muscle mass. And these subjects who get obese and insulin resistance actually have a scarcity of muscle and actually are sarcopenic. Just on that point, but then when they broke down the Stella 3 studies and split them out, when they looked at weight loss, there was a higher mortality in those who were cirrhotic who lost weight. Right. And that may well be that sarcopenic. Possibly. I think in the, the Nash cirrhotic, the ones that are overbeast, we just don't have the data. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. Rachel Zayas. So, Caleb, tell me what you do, what your role is. Antaro's Medical Vice President of Global Business Development, Caleb Roberts. My name is Caleb Roberts, and I lead business development at Antares Medical. And Antares Medical is based in Sweden. We provide imaging services for drug development. So we know the types of imaging services include MRI and PET imaging. So how has the conference been for you so far? What have you gotten out of the first day and a half? There's been a couple of highlights so far for me. I saw two things, actually, that I quite enjoyed. The very first talk of the meeting yesterday, Sven Frank gave a presentation about vascular alterations in NASH and NASH cirrhosis and um, thought it was an excellent overview, excellent scientific overview as well. And I think increasingly now the drug development is focused on NASH and even in cirrhosis. He talked about many of the features of disease, which included ascites and portal flow, uh, even splenomegaly and so on. And what I got out of that, being an imaging person and obviously working for Antares Medical, we focus on imaging. There's a lot that imaging can offer and contributes in this particular area. And so imaging can can quantify portal flow. We can even measure volume of ascites. Even mentioned about hypoxia, which I thought was very interesting as well. Let's see what imaging could possibly do there. Tell me more about that. What do you think will change their implications of that comment? It's always looking for areas where imaging can provide a difference, provide a quantification of a physiological process. And certainly in other, other parts of the body where hypoxia can be quantified, using imaging. It just triggered a thought, really. And I don't know if it's possible, but I think maybe a discussion around that. But certainly the other aspects like portal flow, measuring simple things like spleen volume, liver volume, even stiffness of the spleen and so on. In the setting of a cirrhosis trial, those quite simple MRI measures. In terms of the patient, the patient comes for a 15-minute MRI scan. We can do a variety of different measures, quantify liver fats, quantified liver volume, spleen volume, stiffness, portal flow, ascites volume. You can get a a real amazing suite of, of imaging biomarkers that could really enrich the information for the clinical trial. Thank you. What have you heard that has been surprising or shocking in, in the last couple of days, if, if there was anything? Probably the discussion again around the regulatory endpoint, regulatory pathway. I guess that's a that's it's not really a, a shocking revelation, but it's an ongoing topic. 
of increasing concern. There's sort of concern in the Nash community that, okay, drugs have kind of failed in the late phase. How do we avoid that? I think histology has been discussed quite a bit at this meeting, and I think that will continue to be the case. Certainly with AI, that could come in and help a lot there as well. So I think this is an ongoing theme through the year. Yes. This has been prominent through many of the NASH conferences in yeah. the last year, year and a half. It's interesting to see how regulators are communicating back and forth with the ecosystem. What, what do you hope to see coming out? I hope to see some consensus amongst the regulators, amongst people within the industry, and hopefully come to some kind of decision about how to move forward, especially in the NASH space. Do you think any like specific modality of biomarkers or combination that will help with these clinical trial endpoints? Any thoughts there? There are so many non-invasive tests in development. I mean, you know, there's, there's Litmus and there's Nimble that are evaluating all of these imaging, which is where I come from. There's so much that can be done. PDFF obviously is extremely validated by now. So yeah, I think as those continue to develop, as we continue to understand the nature of NASH in the context of liver, possibly and hopefully that there, there can be a, a combination. Exactly what that is, I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but yeah. hopefully we will sometime. Yes. I agree. I should have asked this first, but I'm going to ask this now. Tell me more about your work, what is new, what is on the horizon for you and your team, anything in that capacity. Yeah, so at Antares, we've, we've been working within the liver space for several years, especially within NASH. And of course, we specialize in, in PDFF, but also in MRE and, and some of the imaging techniques that I've mentioned already. What we've also done at Antares for, for several years already is look at the holistic parts and so not only measure the liver, but also with imaging, we can measure what's going on in the kidney and also in the cardiovascular system. And I think that's a growing topic of, of interest. You know, let's let's look outside of the liver and, and let's see what our drugs are doing to renal flow, for example, and we can measure that. So that's an interesting development. Taurus has tools um, that we can deploy already within clinical developments. And then, of course, there's an exciting area around the development of PET traces, specifically for looking at collagen 1, for example, and also PDGFR beta. That's some new developments, some exciting development centers. Tell me more about looking at multiple organs. I think that this is the first time I've heard anybody say this and it's been in conversation in the echoes between um, hepatologists and practitioners and other clinicians where we cannot just look directly at the liver only and say we have had a good indication of where this patient is and what their long-term outcomes are. So tell me more about that. What do you hope to see? Or what are you doing now and what do you hope to see both within your venture and within the, the greater community? From an imaging perspective, it's quite simple, really, because, you know, the patient attends for an MRI scan, and really, we can image the liver in a very short period of time. We can then move to the kidneys and also to the cardiovascular system as well and image the heart. So from an imaging point of view, then, it's just about the analysis and about quantifying, as I say, renal flow, oxygenation, and then the various cardiac output measures that you can do with MRI. So MRI really is an amazing tool for quantifying physiological processes in multiple organs. Having said that as well, there's also the body composition aspects, so measuring subcutaneous fats, visceral adipose tissue as well. So you can get a really complex and comprehensive, let's say, picture of what's going on. And I think that's just going to add to the richness of the data in the national community. And of course, these drugs are for sure going to be having an impact 
on the kidneys. And the question is, what is that? And is, is that a good effect? How are these drugs impacting cardiac function? And we can we can answer those sort of questions using MR imaging. I look forward to seeing abstracts and papers published on data in the coming years. I think that these are important questions that we need to tackle and take a multifaceted approach. So thank you for illuminating these developments. In the near future, what do you what do you hope to see in, in this space that, that that's currently in I think it's going to be very interesting to see where these non-invasive tests end up and which one to use in which context. And hopefully we get some answers to that with the various consortia that are now underway. And we're already seeing some really interesting data. So I look forward to that. Yes, lots of contexts of of use, a lot of individuals in the space, but many will be coming to fruition very soon. Yeah. least anything I didn't ask you that you think is important to know or consider in the space? Just going back to the discussion earlier today in the panel, actually, and it was interesting because I think there's a realization that there's a lot going on in the liver and it's important to measure, and I'm talking about imaging again, but it's important to measure other factors in the liver. So if you're looking at PDFF, you must also look at the liver volume because the liver volume changes over the course of therapy and it's important to account for that change in liver because that will have an impact on the relative change of liver fat. And there's many things going on, especially with the GLP-1 glucagon type of, of drugs, where you know it's important to also measure liver glycogen, to measure the water content. These things change a lot. That's an important development that needs to find its way into, especially early phase clinical development. Um, thank you so much. We appreciate your insight. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview International Nash Day. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.